Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, Episode 9. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's Eighth Piano Sonata, the Grand Sonata Pathétique in C minor, Opus 13. It was composed in 1798, an important period for Beethoven, in which his works became increasingly admired, even as some became increasingly innovative. But not all Beethoven's innovations were widely admired. Some were seen as eccentricities or even flaws in his works. One example of this is demonstrated by a much-quoted commentary from this period by the Czech composer Johann Wenzel Tomacek. He makes it clear how much he admires Beethoven, that giant among pianoforte players, praising his performances in this period, and particularly his improvisations, stating, Beethoven's magnificent playing, and particularly the daring flights in his improvisation, stirred me strangely to the depths of my soul. Indeed, I found myself so profoundly bowed down that I did not touch my pianoforte for several days. As Tomachek heard more of Beethoven's performances, including those of his piano concertos, with which we'll deal in the next episode, his ardor cooled somewhat. He states, I listened to Beethoven's artistic works with more composure. I admired his powerful and brilliant playing, but his frequent daring deviations from one motive to another whereby the organic connection, the gradual development of ideas was put aside, did not escape me. Evils of this nature frequently weaken his greatest composition, those which spring from a too exuberant conception. It is not seldom that the unbiased listener is rudely awakened from his transport. The singular and original seem to be his chief aim in composition. One is tempted to characterize Tomachek's remarks simply as the reaction of a somewhat old-fashioned, thoroughly classic-minded composer to the works of a fellow composer who slowly but surely was embracing some aspects of the burgeoning Romantic movement. But it is not that simple. Tomachek's music displays, at least on occasion, some innovative qualities of its own in respect to the freedom with which he deals with the classic forms of the period. And as we've seen, Beethoven's music to this point can hardly be seen as radical, even though there have certainly been a number of unexpected twists and turns in his treatment of motives and some novelty in his treatment of inherited classical forms, including the juxtaposition of seemingly unrelated key centers. But as I've mentioned in previous episodes, Beethoven was not alone in doing such things, and a number of Beethoven's expressive devices even some of the more unusual ones, had been anticipated to some extent by Haydn and others. With the Piano Sonata No. 8 in C minor, we have reached the first Beethoven Piano Sonata, which is consistently touted as among the composer's greatest, and deservedly so. It is an excellent work, its thematic ideas highly memorable, and its approach to musical continuity absolutely convincing, even if a bit unorthodox in places. But those personal touches aside, this is not a work of earth-shaking originality. It's certainly difficult to square Tomachek's view of a composer so absolutely committed to producing the singular and original that his music loses organic connection with the greatness of this work, since Beethoven's mastery on this occasion is often on display on so many levels. But before we get to the sonata itself, Let's take a minute to try to determine what its nickname is all about. Many of these colorful add-on descriptor titles are in fact added by the publisher, and this one seems not to have been an exception, although Beethoven appears to have fully approved of it. The title in this instance naturally refers to its ability to evoke a sense of pathos in the listener, and while it is by no means the first Beethoven sonata to be able to make that claim, it is certainly the most famous to this point. Much of that pathos is centered upon the slow introduction to the first movement. You may recall that some earlier introductions have sometimes been rather diffuse, not exactly rambling, but diffuse. This introduction, in common time and mark grave, is focused, concentrated, powerful, and highly dramatic, although it does take its time in getting to the point. It begins with a forte piano accented tonic C minor chord, the notes of the left hand chord, 
closely spaced low in the range. It's a darkly dramatic sound, perhaps even a little muddy, although it probably would have been less so for Beethoven's piano at that point. The right-hand melody, harmonized in block chords, proceeds slowly, although rather grimly, up the scale in dotted note rhythms, with the left hand providing a contrapuntal line moving in contrary motion. On the third beat of the measure, the left-hand line leaps up a jagged tritone to anchor a seven, full diminished seventh of the dominant to which it duly resolves. Let's hear just the first measure. This idea is repeated in the next measure, with its starting point this time being a diminished seventh chord, which resolves after a sharp dissonance back on tonic and inversion. In the third measure, the idea is once again asserted, this time based on a diminished seventh chord of the dominant again. But this time there is no brief moment of repose to follow. The dotted rhythms are asserted again immediately, and then the same diminished seventh chord is repeated. It goes again to the dominant, and then immediately afterwards to another secondary dominant chord, this one tonicizing the subdominant as the dynamics now fluctuate on each beat. So, although the tempo is slow, there is a lot of harmonic activity. We've now heard four different chords in barely three beats, and the fourth beat provides us with another, an almost cadenza-like swirl in the right hand on a B-flat dominant seventh chord, which, as we're about to hear, is the dominant seventh chord of E-flat major, which is the relative major in the key and a natural stopping point. Here are the first five measures. The sense of stability we gain from the arrival of E-flat major does not last long. The ascending dotted rhythm idea of the opening bars continues to dominate as we go forward, frequently in the employ of diminished seventh and other dissonant chords, with the relatively consonant chords in between providing only the slightest sense of respite. If the level of tension is not unrelenting, it is certainly close to that especially as the left hand assumes a series of throbbing 16th note chords against the frequently dissonant melody above it, as we make our way from E-flat major toward C minor. We conclude the introduction with another and even more elaborate cadenza-like flourish, ending on a fermata on the dominant seventh of C minor to prepare us for the next section, the main body of the sonata form movement, where we shift into a la breve or cut time. We're going to give the opening measures of the Allegro section, or to be more precise, the Allegro Moto e Conbrio section, a fair amount of attention before moving on to the rest of the movement. As Beethoven scholar Lewis Lockwood has suggested, this section whipped up a storm of excitement not previously heard in Beethoven's sonatas or anyone else's, and the opening measures have a lot to do with this. When the new section arrives, it does so with pounding octave leaps on the tonic note in the left hand. These leaping octaves are cited by Romantic music scholar Leon Plantinga and others as evidence of Muzio Clementi's influence. And Clementi's influence may also be heard in other aspects of Beethoven's style at this point, including the closely spaced chords low in the piano's range, which we heard in the opening measures of the introduction. The repeated octaves in the left hand have the effect of a reiterated bass pedal, 
anchoring us firmly to C, while the right-hand melody above soon begins to fly up the scale, harmonized in thirds and sixths. This ascending motion in the right hand is all the more powerful because of its contrast with the relentless pounding on the tonic note in the left. And the right hand is not simply ascending up the scale. It's also hinting at harmonic movement in the process. Beethoven tonicizes F minor, the subdominant chord, on the way up in the second bar, and then throws in a raised leading tone chord against the tonic pedal. Neither of these harmonic maneuvers are particularly shocking, and they happen so quickly they barely make an impact, but they do serve to propel the line forward with even greater momentum. After stabilizing oh so briefly on the tonic chord, Beethoven then repeats a variant of the same passage up an octave. Then, when the melodic line makes it to its upper octave peak on the downbeat of measure 5, harmonized by the tonic chord, we get just a hint of repose. Here is a slowed-down example of just the first five bars of the Allegro section. By now we've been listening to those rumbling octaves pounding away on the tonic C's for four and a half measures in a row. Having made their point by providing a lot of rhythmic energy and anchoring the ascending movement in the right hand, Beethoven decides that it is finally time for the left hand to undertake some movement of its own. So after the upper octave tonic note of C has been reached in the right hand and we have experienced something of a cadence, the left hand begins to move and powerfully so, still exploiting leaping octaves in the process, but moving up now by step from C, six steps to A, before skipping down to F-sharp and then finishing off with a 5-1 cadence. Above this new and powerful movement in the bass line, the right hand now descends in half-note chords. It's not initially an unusual progression, although it is a forceful one. It does get somewhat tricky, harmonically speaking, in the last three bars, when what starts out as an inverted tonic C minor chord with the G in the bass becomes a more unusual chromatic chord, often referred to as a German sixth chord, when the bass continues to move up to A flat and an F sharp is introduced into the right hand. Then in the next measure, things get jumbled up a bit, harmonically speaking. The F sharp heard in the right hand now appears in the left hand bass line, and the A flat in the bass line seems to resurface as an A natural in the right hand. And we hear a secondary dominant type chord, it's actually a 7 half diminished seventh of the dominant chord, which then resolves to the real dominant seventh chord, which then finally returns to the tonic C minor chord. The speed at which all of this normally happens makes it difficult to absorb the details of the progression, but these chromatic chords do, I think, add even more to the sense of urgency. Here again is a slightly slowed down version starting at measure 5 and extending through measure 9. It's very easy to get sidetracked by unfamiliar terminology here. But the important thing is that Beethoven has, very skillfully, built up a sense of tension and expectation by pounding away on the tonic chord in the left hand for several measures in a row, while the right hand ascends against it. But he doesn't simply relieve the tension at that point with an emphatic dominant tonic cadence and then move on to something else, as a lesser composer might. First, Beethoven escalates the tension by moving the bass line up the scale against descending left-hand chords, crescendoing all the way. We might well expect that now, finally, we will hear that powerful dominant tonic cadence that will bring everything to a convincing closure. But Beethoven sidesteps our expectations, halts the ascending line in its tracks, and introduces two new chromatic chords that delay the inevitable cadence, but also disarm it and transform its character. When the tonic chord finally arrives, it comes softly, marked piano, and we start the process again, but this time we end on the dominant chord to begin the modulatory transition. 
Here, finally, is an actual performance of the first 17 measures of the Allegro di Molto in Combrio section, beginning at the tail end of the introduction and extending slightly into the modulatory transition. The modulatory transition is a high-energy one, with sudden sforzando accents abounding. It is at first loath to leave C minor, but then as we reintroduce the pounding octaves in the bass, an accented chromatic whole tone chord sends us spiraling away from C minor, originally toward A flat major. A second chromatic chord, a few bars later, moves us in the direction of B flat, and the tonic chord in that key is soon heard as the dominant chord in the key of the second subject. You'll remember from previous episodes that standard behavior at this point would suggest that the second subject be in E-flat major, the relative major of C minor. But Beethoven again sidesteps convention by presenting the second subject in E-flat minor. It's not that the idea of classical balance, the idea that a minor key first subject should be balanced by a second major theme in the relative major, that idea is not completely defunct as we head toward the turn of the 19th century, but Beethoven clearly wants to sustain that minor key mood and intensity in this movement. I earlier mentioned Tomachek's complaint about Beethoven's losing a sense of organic unity from time to time, but no complaint of that sort could be lodged here. The theme is made up of two distinctive motives, the first introduced in the bass clef by the left hand, but soon taken up in a higher octave by the right, is a four-note ascending figure. When repeated in the right hand, the motive is extended by a grace note and a pair of falling minor thirds. The second important idea begins with the ascending leap of a seventh and then works back down the scale, ending up back on tonic. Although the first motive is always introduced in the bass clef, the accompaniment pattern, in contrast to the darkly hued texture for the first subject, resides in the treble clef and is much lighter. Harmonically, the second subject begins quite simply. Tonic chords in second inversion, the fifth of the chord is in the bass, for four bars, followed by dominant seventh chords for four bars. A clever modulation takes us to D-flat major, where the second subject is presented again. An equally clever modulation lifts us back to E-flat minor. Continuing with the same motives, Beethoven hints briefly at other tonal centers through sequential repetitions, before settling down finally on a dominant seventh built on B-flat, the dominant in the original second subject key of E-flat minor. Here's an actual performance of the second subject in E-flat minor, starting with the last few bars of the modulatory transition. excerpt ran a little bit into the closing section, which is made up largely of repeated arpeggio-based figuration patterns in which the top voice climbs methodically up the scale in staccato eighth notes. The other thing about the closing section, which you may well have noticed, even though I only played a few measures of it, is that it was in E-flat major, not E-flat minor. 
So in the end, by the time we get to the closing section and codetta, which I'll play in just a minute, we are in the conventional second subject key of E-flat major, even though we began in the less conventional second subject key of E-flat minor. Earlier I mentioned the idea behind the second subject being in a minor key rather than the expected major key was that Beethoven wanted to sustain the darker, more tension-filled mood established by both the introduction and the allegro section. But having sustained that mood for most of the exposition, he clearly felt that this was now the time to break from it, to provide the sort of contrast which is usually considered part and parcel of sonata form movements in this period. Moving to E-flat major for the closing section not only allows for that contrast, it allows for a more rousing and even upbeat conclusion to the exposition. Such a conclusion means that now, as we head toward the development section, everything is in play. The darkly dramatic first part of the exposition or the brighter, more optimistic sounding second half. And we now just have to wait and see which direction Beethoven will go. But before we get to the development section, let's hear the codetta, clearly marked by the emphatic cadence which introduces it and the reduction in texture. Melodically, it consists mostly of swirling scale lines, but it makes one final reference to the first subject before landing on the dominant seventh chord and a fermata in preparation for the repeat of the exposition. I mentioned earlier that Beethoven's choice of how to begin the development section was wide open, but the second ending at the conclusion of the exposition holds on to an inverted dominant seventh chord on D, which would be a secondary dominant chord pushing us toward G major or G minor. And in fact, the development section begins in G minor, but it does so in an unexpected way. Beethoven has brought the slow introduction back, now in G minor, to begin the development section. It is at least a close variant of it, which admittedly trails off after the third measure and heads toward E minor by means of a clever reinterpretation of a diminished seventh chord. We hear the chord initially in G minor, and seconds later we realize that it's really going to function as a different chord with a different root and take us to an entirely new key. And after a fermata on the dominant chord in the new and unexpected key of E minor, Beethoven launches a passage similar to the first two bars of the Allegro section, including even the pumping octaves in the left hand. This one, which we'll call Development 1, moves up the scale in leaps rather than steps, and, starting at piano and crescendoing quickly to forte, the effect is even more dramatic. But it quickly gives way to a new passage, which resembles, in terms of texture and accompaniment pattern, the second subject. Melodically, it is somewhat like the second subject, and we'll call it Development 2. It's based on a five-note motive that moves up the scale to land on an accented, non-harmonic tone, which then resolves down by step. 
These two ideas, the first based somewhat on the opening bars of the first subject, and the second on the opening bars of the second subject, alternate, fragment, and modulate, arriving fairly quickly at G minor. The left hand now begins to dominate, with a motive derived from what I referred to earlier as development one, against pumping octaves from the right hand. Here is an excerpt showing the two new development themes, both based to some extent on earlier exposition themes, and the rapid octave leaps in the right hand. The tension never lets up here, and though the texture is stripped down and somewhat austere in places, the dynamic level crescendos up to forte and remains there for several measures. When the music eventually quiets to pianissimo, we hear a series of rapid arpeggio-based figures in the right hand, but in the bass clef range, that fluctuate chromatically over the repeated pedal Gs in the left hand. The motive I referred to earlier as development one does assert itself as we begin to crescendo. In fact, the final three notes of that motive, marked with distinctive accents, lead us to the final descending scale passage that in turn leads us into the recapitulation. As usual, Beethoven's recapitulation section has some interesting features. The original modulatory transition from the exposition has been replaced by an extended series of half-note chords in the right hand over the leaping octaves of the left. This passage is actually less interesting than its counterpart in the exposition in terms of rhythmic variety, but it is more unpredictable harmonically and takes us into new tonal areas before finally settling down to F minor for the second subject, the same key in which that second subject had appeared briefly in the exposition. The closing section here appears in C minor, one of the few conventional aspects of the movement, although it does eventually move into A flat major, as it did in the closing section in the exposition. It also quotes a bit of the first subject again, just as it did at a comparable place near the tail end of the exposition. But it also does something it did not do at the end of the exposition. It brings back a variant of the opening measures of the introductory adagio again in the original tempo after a fermata on a diminished seventh chord. And this variant, now expressing C minor, decrescendos down to pianissimo before the opening measures back to their original Allegro Molto e con Brio tempo and alla breve meter, return one last time, and we drive to the final cadence on C minor. Here is the very last part of the movement, starting in the recapitulation of the closing section and continuing on to the end of the movement.
the slow movement, Adagio Cantabile, in A-flat major and two-four time, begins with one of Beethoven's stateliest and most noble melodies. But noble though it may be, it is by no means completely devoid of affective or emotional gestures. Foremost of these is the yearning chromaticism in the melody between measures four and five as the fifth scale degree reaches up toward the sixth. Here is an excerpt of the first eight bars. The texture here is particularly euphonious. The right-hand melody is presented initially in the tenor range, written in the bass clef, over broken chords also in the right hand, and a broad, unusually melodic-sounding bass line in the left. The harmony is generally straightforward here, although chord inversions are used to great effect. Beethoven sets up a secondary dominant-type chord in the third measure, which embellishes the dominant that follows it in the fourth but measure 5 probably holds the most effective harmonic gesture. The dominant 7th chord in measure 4 passes here not to a tonic chord, but what is initially heard as an inverted leading tone 7th chord with a dangling dissonance on the top, having arrived there by means of the yearning chromaticism I mentioned earlier. Here are just those two measures. when the dissonant seventh from the leading tone chord resolves in the second half of the measure by leaping down a fifth, we then hear the chord as a more conventional dominant seventh with the seventh in the bass. But the effect lingers, especially since this is the beginning of a sequence and the idea is continued in the next measure, this time with a descending tritone. The following eight bars present the theme again an octave higher, and with broken chord accompaniment patterns now heard in right and left hands beneath the melody. Soon the quarter notes in the original bass line are replaced by 16th note arpeggios. We then hear a transition of 12 measures that introduces contrast on several levels, melody, harmony, and texture. Its most distinctive element appears in the second half of the transition, a descending, pathos-evoking, chromatic line in 16th notes. Its goal is to take us to the dominant chord to set up a return of the main theme in the tonic, but it takes its time getting there and stops off in F minor and C minor briefly along the way. The opening eight-measure theme then returns, still in A-flat major, only minimally transformed. 
but then we encounter our next transition, which begins in A-flat minor with a new two-bar melodic phrase in eighth notes against throbbing sixteenth-note triplets. In the second measure of this new phrase, the left hand enters in the bass clef with a new triplet bass figure starting on the second scale degree, which hints at the descending chromatic movement of the first transition before descending by step down the scale. The two measures then repeat, the second knot with a new melodic conclusion, although still firmly within the implied dominant seventh harmony. The left hand triplets recur in the second measure, although this time starting on the fifth note of the scale before descending down to the tonic. The first measure returns again, but this time heads off in a dramatic new direction, with accents emphasizing the strong beats and with the earlier triplet accompaniment now having been translated into rather thick block chords in the left hand, we now plunge into a secondary dominant type chord which sweeps us away from A flat minor and toward the remote key of E major a new key that is confirmed just a couple of bars later with an emphatic cadence. The new key confirmed, the dynamics decrease to pianissimo, and the melody heard earlier in the transition now reappears in the new key. It all sounds quite different now in a major key, of course, even though the texture is largely equivalent and the left hand has even brought back its earlier descending triplet idea in order to make us feel more at home. It's all quite lovely, and the transformation from the key of A-flat minor to E major paints the theme in a whole new and very warm color. But you may have guessed why I cut off my excerpt where I did. It is because things are about to change again and change dramatically. The repeating triplets in the accompaniment will continue on, but the melodic activity in the right hand becomes minimal and the left hand now introduces some new and rather ominous sounding ascending triplet figures, starting low in the range, outlining tension-filled, full diminished seventh chords. But at the last minute, the diminished seventh chords resolve to their natural goal, which is E-flat major, and E-flat major is, of course, the dominant chord in the key of A-flat, our original key, into which we glide smoothly as the theme is presented for the last time. This final presentation is quite similar to the first, except 16th note triplets have replaced the 16th note broken chord patterns we heard earlier. And there is a brief but lovely little coda based on a new triplet version of the final two measures of the theme. This movement is sometimes described as being a short rondo, implying a form of A, B, A, C, A with a little coda on the end, but I'm not sure the B or C sections really rise to the level of independent episodes, and I think it might be better to think of the movement as three statements of a beautiful theme, the second somewhat abbreviated, separated by two unusually evocative transitions. At any rate, there is no mystery as to why this has been such a widely loved movement over the years. The finale is, on the other hand, rather a proper rondo, in cut time in C minor, featuring an attractive refrain theme consisting of four components. The rather quiet refrain begins with an ascending figure in pickup staccato eighth notes, 
which is basically an arpeggiation of the tonic C minor triad starting on G, the fifth scale degree, with the top two notes connected by a passing tone. After reaching the upper third scale degree, the E flat, it broadens into combinations of dotted quarters and eighth notes, touching on upper and lower neighbor tones before returning to the E flat. It's a simple enough idea, but the result is just a little more complex than it first appears, because while the harmony below in the left hand suggests a simple alternation of tonic and dominant seventh chords, it does so over a reiterated C, which functions like a repeated tonic pedal, thereby adding a subtle layer of tension to the proceedings. The next idea is more rhythmically active, combining two figures of four running eighth notes, the second of a third from the first, and each beginning with a grace note. The idea finishes with three repeated notes on G, the first two with distinctive staccato markings. The next idea may actually be the most distinctive. Starting with two stepwise eighth note pickups, it moves up to the high point of the melody, then drops a tritone, all of this above a leading tone diminished seventh chord. The next measure largely replicates the first down a step as the harmony returns to the tonic chord. The third idea is repeated, the melodic high points now doubled in octaves, and we move to the final idea, which is something of a compression of the first and leads to a 5-1 cadence. This is followed by a more emphatic cadential passage featuring large leaps and tumbling scales, and which manages to tonicize the subdominant briefly before its final dynamic cadence. Let's hear that much. After a brief pause in the action, the transition to the first episode is introduced. It is mostly new, relying on ascending arpeggios, offbeat accents, which had been anticipated in the cadential tag to the refrain theme, and, right at the end, a triplet-dominated figure introduced as we seem to be confirming the new key of E-flat minor. When we arrive at the first episode, it turns out that the modulation to E-flat minor was just a ruse, and we find ourselves in E-flat major, as we would expect. But the triplet figures appearing at the end of the transition were not a ruse, and in fact undulating eighth note triplet patterns, often tossed back and forth between the hands, are to play a very important role in this episode, at least its first part. But that's just the first part of the first episode. The strongly contrasting middle part, only seven bars long, starts on the dominant and features legato block chords and one especially nifty chromatic chord in the fourth bar. And as you heard, the middle section of the episode passes quickly back to a variant of the first section, again featuring triplet motives tossed back and forth, now led by the left hand. When the episode has run its course, there's not really much of a re-transition here. We simply hear a rapidly descending scale line 
ending on a dominant seventh chord back in C minor, held with a fermata. And then the refrain theme is back, in a form almost identical with its initial occurrence, with the addition of a crescendo marking leading into the last cadential tag. I mentioned that there was no real retransition passage leading back to the refrain, and there is no real transition passage leading to the second episode either. The refrain theme simply cadences in C minor, there is the briefest of pauses, and then the second episode begins with three pickup notes. The key is A-flat major, a closely related key, and by no means unusual for the second episode in a minor key rondo. The theme begins quietly with half notes leaping up a fourth, the second measure replicating the first down a step, and the left hand moving in contrary motion against it. By measure three, the rhythmic activity picks up, with descending stepwise quarters taking over, and Beethoven introduces the first of several weak beat syncopations between the hands. The opening phrase ends on the dominant, and for the next, the left hand takes up its version of the theme, while the right hand juxtaposes some more offbeat suspension figures against it, resulting in some gentle but interesting dissonances. After four measures, we shift to F minor, and the theme is introduced again in the right hand, with the left supplying the offbeat suspension figures, now doubled in thirds. Soon, we're back to A-flat major, and the stepwise motion from measures three and four, and variants of it, is employed as we touch on other keys for a few bars. But soon, the leaping half notes are reintroduced in the right hand, although this time a descending staccato bass line played by the left hand is more likely to seize the listener's attention as we crescendo up to forte. Soon, the two hands reverse rolls and we decrescendo again, but it's just a temporary state of affairs because after a chromatic modulation pointing us toward G major, we hear a series of rapid arpeggio figures tossed fiercely back and forth between the hands, initially in sixteenth notes and later in triplets. And the whole thing comes to a fortissimo climax with a descending scale line that sweeps us into a fermata on a dominant seventh chord, ready to return us to the original tonic of C minor. So there's a lot going on in this episode, and this time, we really do have a reasonably substantial retransition back to the refrain theme. I'm only going to summarize the rest of the movement, although in fact there are a lot of new details to absorb, more than most people are likely to catch on a single hearing. The refrain returns again in C minor, somewhat transformed. It uses measures 5 and 6, the idea I mentioned earlier as perhaps the most distinctive part of the theme, to tilt the key toward F minor. Then, a largely new and almost ethereal dolce passage consisting primarily of scale-wise eighth notes, moves us slowly but surely back toward C minor. We then get a reappearance of the first episode. It's in C minor now and somewhat changed, but clearly recognizable. We hear the first part and the second part, which is now extended, and its chromatic motion suggests a modulation that never really takes place. But we do not hear a return of the first part of the episode, as we did originally. Instead, the extended middle section, now crescendoing, now decrescendoing, becomes suspended on a dominant seventh chord on G, which leads us back to the refrain for its final statement. But it is not quite the same refrain theme. The initial eight bars are close enough to the original, but as it continues, 
its original transition has been replaced by one incorporating the familiar eighth note triplet figures from the first episode. In fact, these repeated triplets come to dominate, with a passage in which the strong beats in each measure climb higher and higher. Eventually, the repeated triplets give way to a more rhythmically disrupted passage, alternating between sound accords in the left hand and darting scale lines in the right. We seem to be confirming the original tonic of C minor right and left until, rather at the last minute, we seem to shift keys, coming to a stop after a cascading descending line on a dominant seventh chord on E flat. Are we really going to introduce a new key this close to the end of the movement? So it seems. The music quiets again, and Beethoven quotes from the opening bars of the refrain but it's in A-flat major, and sounds very little like it did in its original form. But then, in the nick of time, maybe a little after the nick of time, in the last four measures, the A-flat chord is reinterpreted as another of those exotic chromatic chords which resolves down a step to the dominant chord on G, and the movement comes crashing to an end in C minor. Here is the last part of the movement, beginning with the last return of the refrain theme. It's a fine rondo movement, full of memorable themes, rhythmic energy, and enough surprises in terms of form to keep us guessing a little. It may well be his most successful rondo to date. Is it as great as the first two movements? That's another question. The first two movements of this sonata occupy rarefied air of the sort we seldom have the chance to experience. This rondo movement is excellent but it is probably not on the same level as the first two. For our next episode, we'll look at Beethoven's first two piano concertos. <laughs>